Church family, we are still in Acts, and it is good. It is good. We are on Acts, uh, supposed to be 21, 1 to 16 this morning. I'm going to back us up a couple verses, because we're, we're kind of picking up in the middle of a story here. So we're going to start with the last few verses of last week's text, which will begin at 20, verse 36. And the context, if you haven't read the story yet, is that Paul has just, or is in the process of just, saying goodbye to the Ephesian church for what he knows and has said to them is the last time. So he knows he's not going to see them again. What I'm going to do is read uh, 2036 to 2116, but I'm going to stop at a certain point and teach for about two minutes and then finish the reading of Scripture and then I'll preach. Some things don't fit in to the sermon, but they're really good and you need to hear them. I need to hear them, so hence the break. 2036, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing on to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Stop here for a second. Got a reference to Philip, an evangelist, and his four, it says four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then the very next thing is a a reference to Agabus, who is called a prophet. So why are these four young ladies called uh, young women who prophesy and Agabus is called a prophet. Why the difference? Well, um, when God gives us gifts and he gives 
gifts to every single one of us, they come like little seeds. And the seeds need to be watered, and they need to have sunshine, and they need to grow up. So the gifts that God gives us, they have to have the opportunity to grow from seed form into maturity, right? And part of the role of the church is, and particularly leaders in the church, is to look around and notice, oh, this is what God's doing in a certain person. Oh, I see this gift. And you call it out and you give opportunity for it to be used and you help that gift to grow. You nurture the gift. You give feedback as a person uses their gift. And at a certain point, you move from, you, people move from using or being, uh, moving in a gift to, we recognize, wow, there is a certain grace of God on your life for this. Wow, it's not just that you seem to have a gift for teaching, but you are a teacher. We affirm that as a community, and we then uh, install you into an office that God's calling you to. So let's just use Marissa, for example. We've seen God giving her the grace to evangelize for quite some time. Evangelism flows out of her. Now, we're all called to evangelize, but this girl's particularly gifted, and there's a grace of God on her life for it. We see the Lord bearing fruit. And so we we affirm that as a community, and she just called us to pray for her. We're going to continue to pray. And she said, I think God's calling me to do this, like, all the time. So how do we respond to that? We pray, we watch, we keep giving opportunity, and then at a certain point, we discern together, yeah, God is. And then, so what's the role and, you know... uh is there some is there some capacity that you serve that in and and then the church blesses that and um in essence recognizes we're not giving anything we're just recognizing the anointing or the gifting of God on on a person now that that's a, that's for all of us so i'm saying that as a teaching moment so that we can be looking for the gifts that God's given to each other and calling them out okay there's one other thing i want us to notice this term in here that Luke uses when he says uh, four daughters who prophesied, it's a term that denotes very young women. In other words, um, one really well-known commentator says they're all, likely all under 16, which means, if you think about it, like 16, 14, 12, 10. Beautiful for two reasons. One, children do not need to wait to become adults to have and use and grow in spiritual gifts. Meaning, you've got them now, and we need to look at you, find out what your gifts are, and nurture them. But secondly, Luke is writing in a context where unmarried women are the lowest on the totem pole in terms of like uh, cultural, what's the word? Status. Thank you, Teo. And so, um, this is, this is, we wouldn't notice this maybe, but this is a really strong, implicit message about the kingdom of God and how in the kingdom there's neither male nor female, which Paul writes to the Galatians. So Luke is elevating women at this point and saying, um, women have spiritual gifts and are called to use them in ministry as well. Alright, let's keep reading. Agabus has delivered this prophecy. I'll just read it again. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, 
the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. God's word. Mm -hmm. Um, Last night, I was tucking our girls in and... um, Sarah was giving me a hug and she had her arms around my neck. And I said, Sarah, daddy's actually going to talk about this in the sermon tomorrow morning. She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm going to tell our church family that sometimes when I go to tuck you in, you hold on. And actually all the kids will do this at some points. So they'll hold on really strong. Like, daddy, don't let go. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's really hard. I don't want to let go. I, I, I would love to cuddle and just hold my daughter or my son all night long. If there weren't other things that needed to be done, you know, and so it's this like, oh, I don't, I don't want to tear away. And I know I'm going to see you in the morning. I'm going to see you tomorrow morning. And yet my heart's still like, oh, I don't want to tear away. I can only imagine the, the, the depth of the emotion and the grief that these disciples in Ephesus and other places are feeling as um, Luke writes, we had to tear ourselves away from them and actually marissa i hope you don't mind me sharing this but she she told us that before the service this morning that she had to tear herself away as she left india right the the like physically tear yourself away from some of the students and i had that when i left china um 15 years ago with some of the students that i led to the lord you know am i ever going to see you again are you ever going to see me again and this tearing it's really hard but it's, it's also, well, it's hard. I mean, some of you, have, some of you experience that maybe with, um, the death of a loved one and you know that they're, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a grandparent or a friend, but you know that their, their death is imminent and you've got to say goodbye, but you're not ready. You've got this opportunity, but you're not ready to let, you don't want to let go. It's kind of what this feels like. Like you're being forced to let go, but you don't want to. So it's hard, but as I read our text this morning, I want to say that it's also just beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. We, I don't know if you picked up, but four times in that reading, they stopped, they're stopped somewhere, and of those four times, three of them are really difficult partings. Three of them. So Paul and company go, they land somewhere, and they don't even know the believers, and within a couple of days, there's just this deep, beautiful, sweet, loving fellowship that's developed because they're one in Jesus Christ. And these are people that Paul hasn't necessarily led to the Lord, but there's oneness in the Lord. And so we don't want to leave. And you can, you can just imagine why they don't want him to leave. He's just been so encouraging to them, built them up wherever he goes. They build up, they strengthen, they pour into. 
Who doesn't want to be around someone like that? And so we don't want to let go. And it's beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, this is, this is, we're seeing a picture of the answer to Jesus' prayer. When Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. There's this depth of love that we're witnessing. But what I want to say and what I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning is that inside that love is actually a great danger. The danger is hidden in the fact that they're trying to compel or persuade Paul not to do something, not to go somewhere that he's been specifically told by the Lord to do. So we didn't read it in our text, but earlier in his address to the Ephesians, it says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me of suffering and hardship. But Paul clearly said, compelled by God. God's telling me, go to Jerusalem. That's the direction. I don't have any more direction. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I'm called to go to Jerusalem. And then we read in our text, and this could, this could seem a little bit confusing, but it says in 21 verse 4, through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go. And that could make it sound like the Holy Spirit is communicating to them to urge Paul not to go, which would be in direct contrast to what Paul said. Now, friends, we know this. God never contradicts himself, ever. There's no deceit in God. When he says something, it is true, and he will not contradict it. And so what might it mean that through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go? Well, I think it becomes clearer a little bit a little bit um, further on as we read what happens next with Agabus. And it says, uh, Agabus says, the Holy Spirit says, and he prophesies that in the same way that he's binding uh, his hands and feet that so Paul's going to be bound in Jerusalem. And then we see the response of the people there. And it's, it's, God didn't say, don't go to Jerusalem. God said, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. The people responded by saying, therefore don't go. So we can look back at 21.4 and we can probably assume that the same thing's happening there, that the Holy Spirit is giving some form of revelation where he's showing, God is showing, suffering's coming for Paul, and he's showing it to the believers that are having to let go of Paul. And they're responding by saying, by urging him not to go. Okay? So a little bit about the gift of prophecy to help us understand what's happening here. And I hope to do, we hope to do more teaching on this in the future. But we've been encouraging all of us to pray for this gift. This is a gift that Paul says, um, eagerly desires spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy, because he or she who prophesies does so to strengthen, build up, and encourage other believers. So what's prophecy? It's, it's hearing a message from the Lord for somebody else. A message from the Lord for, the, for a group or for a person. 
So here, Agabus comes, and he's got a message. And the message is, really simply, you're going to be bound, Paul's going to be bound in Jerusalem in this way. Now, here's what Agabus didn't say. He didn't say, and therefore that means, and therefore the application of that is. See, anytime God speaks, we call that revelation, God speaking. There's always an interpretation. What does it mean? Anne had a dream last night. She shared it with me at the breakfast table. And we wondered, what does it mean? When we know what it means, we still don't yet know what the application is. The next question is, what do I do with it? So there's the revelation. God shows something or he says something. And then there is the interpretation. What does it mean? And then thirdly, there's the application. Well, what therefore do I do or how do I respond to what God's showing? So here's what's... It could be really easy to to miss this, but here's what's happening. Love, deep love on the part of these believers is actually getting in the way of obedience to God's call on Paul's life or attempting to get in the way. In their love, they are assuming that they know the interpretation and the application of God's guidance. In their love, they're assuming that, well, God must be showing this. He must be saying this because he wants Paul to not suffer and he wants us to share this with him and compel him to stay and therefore They plead. They weep. They try to persuade Paul to go directly against the will of God. To go directly against something that God is calling him to. I think this is kind of sobering. That love can blind us to the purposes of God in somebody else's life or even in our own life. And I think this is really easy. I'll give you a couple examples of what it looks like for me. Pastoral care. When somebody shares something difficult, man, I love you. Pastor Gina loves you. We just want to bring comfort right away. Comfort is a response that we want to bring, isn't it, Pastor Jalisa? We want to comfort. But... Our God, who is sovereign, meaning he doesn't cause all things, but he certainly allows things. Sometimes our God allows hardship and even suffering and has purposes that he wants to work through them. Sometimes he lets us go into a refiner's fire because he's got Maybe it's character work in us. Maybe he wants to prepare us for a next stage of serving him. And he knows that we need to go through something in order to be ready to serve him. So what happens in pastoral care if we assume, oh, this difficulty is bad and it needs to be gotten rid of and we need to just bring comfort without saying, Lord, how are you at work? Where are you present? What are you doing? See how easy this is? 
So not just pastoral care, maybe we all do this to each other. Maybe we have such great love for each other that we immediately want to squeeze difficulty and hardship out of each other's lives. We could do this easily for Marissa or for uh, any one of us. If God is calling one of you, so let's just pretend God's calling someone here out of the role or the position that they're currently in. He's calling them to take a step of faith and to give up a paying job or to take a massive pay decrease to take on some role of serving him in his kingdom. Do we bless that? Well, what if it's our roommate and it means they've got to move? What if it's our spouse and it means a pay massive decrease in household income? What if it's our child and it means they're leaving to go serve the Lord somewhere else? What if it's our parent and it means they're less available to our children as grandma and grandpa? Love can blind us, right, to God's purposes in each of our lives. God has got an incredibly high calling for Paul. So sneak preview on the rest of the story. Um, he is going to, by saying yes to the Lord, he is going to stand before kings and governors and the highest offices in the land and testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only is he going to stand in those places, but he is eventually going to get sent to the heart of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself, and underneath Caesar's nose, the man who claims to be God, he is for two years going to freely proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, in the heart of the beast, Revelations pictures Rome as the beast, is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ growing up. And it's going to cause the spread of the gospel all over the Western world. God has these incredibly beautiful, holy, good, massive purposes through Paul. God is going to bring incredible glory to himself through Paul. And Paul's going to have incredible satisfaction in it. He's going to lead dozens and hundreds of other people to Christ. He's going to start and plant other churches. He's going to nurture churches from jail. He is going to disciple people one-on-one in Rome. And all of that hinges on Paul's yes to Jesus. Paul's, I will walk toward suffering and hardship. I'll choose, I'll choose to walk away from, to part from people that I love dearly and whom I would love to be with. And I will walk toward suffering and hardship. Friends, Paul is able to do that. He's able to choose that because he's not the first one to do that. He's not the first one to face the choice. He's following one who in Matthew 16 It tells us, told his disciples, I must go. Jesus said, I must go. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem 
where the chief priests and the teachers and the elders will mock him and spit on him and his own disciple, blinded by love and maybe ambition, said to him, began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. And although Jesus has a quick response, I don't imagine that it was an easy response. But by the grace of God, Jesus is able to say to Peter, Satan, get behind me. Sobering and yet profoundly clear that anyone or anything that would direct us away from the will of God and the purposes of God, and don't you know God has purpose for everyone in this room. He's got good works prepared in advance for us to walk in, says Ephesians 2.10. And Jesus is able to recognize anything that would take us away from the will and the purposes of God ultimately comes from Satan. And so he separates himself from the disciple that he loves and he walks on. And aren't we glad that Jesus walks on to Jerusalem, that Jesus walks into suffering, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures a cross, scorning its shame, Scorning it. So that he could call sons and daughters. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Paul's not initiating anything. Paul's following Jesus. Paul is responding to the love of Jesus Christ. Paul has been caught up By that love, he was caught up on the Damascus road. He's become enraptured with that love. He prays it everywhere. You hear this prayer from our lips all the time. I pray, Paul says, I pray in Ephesians 3, that I kneel before the Father in heaven from whom all fatherhood exists, and I pray that he might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may live, be alive in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and established and having your life planted in the love of God, may have the power, the ability to grasp how wide and how deep and how long is this love that knows no bounds, so that when you do, you'll be filled up beyond the measure with love. So friends, what we're seeing this morning in Paul walking toward Jerusalem is love responding to love. Paul's compelled, he writes that to the Corinthians, I'm compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. And compelled by the love of Jesus, he says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die for the name of Jesus. When he says those words, there's nothing but love that produces them. He's not boasting in himself. He's not achieved some grand spiritual state. He loves Jesus because Jesus loves him. It's really that simple and yet that profound. And so I want to ask, are you ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus? Or said differently, has Jesus' love grabbed you, grasped you, caught you up, filled you enough that you can say, I'm ready not only to suffer, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus? 
I said those words to my parents 15 years ago before I first went to China. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what the year held. And I said, Mom and Dad, I think you just need to hear this from me. I don't anticipate this, but I just you need to hear, I love the Lord, and I'm ready to die. If I lose my life, that's okay. You know what I've learned in the 15 years since? I think it's not easy, but I think it's easier to die once than it is to die daily. It's actually a lot harder for us to daily choose to follow the Lord, to not live out of our old selfish nature, but to give of ourselves over and over, over and over, to love and serve others wherever the Lord calls us. And yet, love compels us. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we're drawn toward that love. And so I want to end here. We, we don't normally use this word or talk about Lent. But Lent is a season in the church year where many parts of the church uh, spend... I don't even know how long it is, six weeks? Somebody help me, six weeks? Reflecting on the suffering love of Jesus Christ. And I want to give an invitation on behalf of the discipleship team that we as a whole congregation would choose to enter in and to practice Lent this year. And so Lent in many places is begun with an Ash Wednesday service. And we'll have one here on Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. That will be our time of entering in. And we will ask the Lord together, Lord, fill us, fill us over and over with the depth of your love and help us to respond to it. And help us to respond by being willing to give up. Lord, in the same way that you gave up your life, that you gave up the glory of heaven, we want to give up. And so, Lord, what would you have us give up? Is there anything that you would have me give up for this season of Lent? Would you have me fast from particular things? Fast means take a break from. Lord, is there anything that you're calling me to in terms of a new way of serving you in your kingdom. Lord, maybe for some of us it will be a season of preparation for future calling where the Lord is dealing, like I said earlier, with our character and with sin issues. But we delight to put sin to death. We delight to. So I want to invite us to enter and to experience that season together. And I want to invite us to talk about what the Lord's doing in our hearts and our lives together as we're on this journey, to share with each other. So maybe testimony time over the next couple of months, maybe that could even be uh, sort of shaped around our experiences of entering into 
the suffering and the hardship of the Lord, of giving things up. And I know that the things that we give up pale in comparison to what Jesus gave up. That's not the point. The point is that we're following a suffering Savior and we're entering not only into his hardship, but we're also entering into his joy and the joy of what gets accomplished. And I could just imagine the glory that God could bring to himself as we lay down our lives. And I'm talking to everybody in here. I'm talking from the youngest person to the oldest. God's got something for every one of us to give. And if he could work through uh, an older man, just a human being like Paul, who was just fully abandoned, surrendered to his purposes, how much more can he also work through each one of us? So I'm going to close here, and we'll just have a minute or two of silence before the worship team leads us in a song of response. Let me lead us into, into silent prayer. Lord, purify our love so that we can see, as Tim prayed earlier, so that we can see what you're doing in our life and in each other's lives, so that we can pray for it and bless it and encourage it, and so that we, too, are willing to walk toward hard things for the glory of your name. Because our lives, we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death. We are yours, Jesus. And so, Lord, even as I've just prayed this, now hear our own silent prayers of consecration.